tonight. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's go two places. We're going to go Malachi chapter 3, uh, and then toward the end we'll hit uh, a portion of, of Luke chapter 15. Uh, and so, uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like a free one, just raise your hand and uh, we will gladly uh, run one to you. And so, uh, let, let me start by this saying this. So, so last week, uh, I, I open by saying how we're walking together through the book of Malachi as God is confronting really wayward worship, especially the wayward worship of, of his children. And then uh, we connected that to how, by extension, uh, that we would be prayerfully exposed if, if we were wayward, wayward in, our, in our worship of him. And, and even as I said that, I... Uh, and I thought, okay, well that's, that's probably not the best way to describe the intentions of the words we find uh, in the book of Malachi. And, and it's kind of just stuck with me uh, throughout this week. And, and, and I think what I would prefer to say is that uh, the, the gift of Malachi, uh, really the gift of, of all of the Bible, is how God first displays his love and then he teaches us what a proper response to that love, what it looks like. And, and so, so it can be a challenge sometimes to know what to do when love is bestowed or, or lavished. And, uh, and we may know how we feel in those moments, but we might not know possibly how best to respond to it. And, and so the Israelites were in this season of waywardness and where, where they were not responding to God's love with with pure devotion. And that's what God tells you. Like, hey, I give you freely and I give you purely. And my ex- expectation or my desire, I should say, is that you would respond uh, with pure devotion. And so, so God confronts them uh, not, not by belittling his people, but by reminding them of his love. And then what happens is he exposes sin in their hearts, which was manifesting itself uh, really, in in their actions, and I think there can be uh, re- these can be some hard words to hear, especially if if you can be found guilty of these actions. But 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 a father who is unwilling to confront the deadly and and really the dangerous activities of his children is 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 negligent of his in his role of their lives, and and so what happens here is is if we, we want to fight God, uh, and we want to fight with God, and then what we can do is we can read these words that are found in Malachi as a, uh, as a wrath-filled father who is using words to cut so we can essentially justify our own actions by telling him uh, he's being unreasonable uh, and that he is the one who's causing the pain first. But, but if, if, if we want to find the road to peace and joy and purpose, we can read these words of correction with the reminder of the opening verses of the book where God comes in and he says, I have loved you. And he says, I chosen you. And he says, I am for you. And, and so, so we've been using this phrase to, to better understand the condition of a wayward heart by saying, the result of a wayward heart is simple, uh, simply uh, pseudo-worship. Uh, it's, it's a worship that looks almost like pure devotion, but it's really just masked religious activity attempting to convince God. So, so it, it, in essence, it's, it's pretend 
worship, and, and at the heart of it is simply this. It's, it's a failure to see and to feel the goodness of God. And, and so, so last week we started by, by looking at these two desires and, and really one demand that God confronts us with uh, at the end of, of chapter 2. Uh, and now we only got to one desire and one demand because uh, Captain Longwind doesn't know when to get off the mic. Um, but what we said was, was simply this. No, nobody said, no, man, it was great. Everybody's like, yeah, Captain Longwind, get you. Finally, at least, some, at least he knows. Um, but what we said was simply this. From, from verse chapter 2, verse 17, that God desires faith from his people. Uh, that, that, that the argument is built out that the people were complaining how God is, is no longer just or he wasn't acting justly uh, and, and that there were times that they would say everyone who does evil is good in his sight or they would ask this question, where is the God of justice? And, and we started to answer this by saying it's a, it's a hard place to make an argument when, when we are the ones who broke covenant. Uh, but but still, we expect God to respond as if we hadn't. And and then we explored how how justice we believe is non-existent with God is is actually justice delayed as we open chapter three, and that this was for our benefit. This is good news for us that that His justice or His wrath is not poured out upon us right now because He is patient and He is long suffering with us and. And so, so chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 brought us a demand that we explored and that God demands purity from his people because everyone will be judged. And this is where the, the work of, of Jesus is brought into greater focus in Malachi, that, that God says he is sending justice and because he is merciful and gracious, his justice bringer comes to all and for some he comes like a refiner's fire and then uh, burning away sin so that we can respond with pure worship and then for others he is like a, a forest fire where uh, he will be a swift witness against those who are wayward in their in their sin and and god reveals some specific types of of people um, which coincidentally uh, and i don't think I, I don't think i said this last week coincidentally uh, these people were in part the ones that the Israelites are complaining the most about when it comes to their injustices. And, and so we ended with this, this, this powerful verse uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, where, where God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And that connected us to this passage in, in Exodus where God puts on display his own proclamation. He tells us, he's like, you don't have to guess who I am. You don't get, have to guess how I am. Uh, you, you just need to hear me say that the Lord, the Lord, is a God who is merciful and gracious. And so, so he comes in and he says, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. That's good news. So he's merciful and he's gracious. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, now, by extension, us being children found in Jesus, are not consumed and so where, where i intended to go uh last week was all the way through verse 12 where we'll be getting through today but I'm, I'm thankful we didn't try to rush it because there is so much to respond to in these verses 
because what we're going to see as, as means of the second desire, uh, and I think this is your first blank in your talk notes, that, that God desires blessing for his people. God does it. Now, we have to be very mindful and we need to be very careful as to our expectations about those blessings. Uh, and God's going to bring that to light uh, when we get through these verses. They're gonna, uh, this will uh, take us to a verse that is typically, I said this last week, it's very misused. And it's very misrepresented, especially in the church. In fact, typically a guy like me will use it um, when uh, they've had a meeting with their financial pastor uh, at their church and they're like hey we're, we might not make budget this year and then they're like oh let me just pluck this verse out and let me talk to you about it uh and and they will use it as a way of motivating the congregation toward giving and and, and what i pray is when we get to to verse 10 is is something that is so much greater and so much life-changing than a sermon on tithes and, and offerings which though that will be in part what this passage lends to us and what, what i pray is that we would see something greater and grand about god's heart for us and and so i think i think one of the best ways to to for these verses to kind of sink in is when we start in seven we're just going to treat this like it's a screenplay um because that's all it is it's just a conversation that god is having and we see these lines uh playing themselves out and and for me this is kind of like a, a front row seat uh for a similar conversation god has with me uh and and so as we get to verse seven we need to be reminded that although we we took a a break for a week with verse six uh verse seven is just the continuation of of the conversation and and so uh and really what it does is it continues us all the way back to chapter 1 is the proper response to God's love being the first and the best of our lives and not the leftovers. And so this is where we are in, in verse 7. God says this, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? Okay, so here's what we get. The issue, the issue on the table that God says to his people is you are not walking with me. You're not. In fact, God says, I, I've shown you the kind of life I want for you and from you and uh, as a response to my covenant with you. And, and what he graciously does here is expose the issue of their hearts being that they have turned aside from walking with him and they've turned toward walking in an opposite direction or an opposing direction to which god says simply this the solution is that you would return to me like you don't have to guess if you have walked away from god what god will always tell you is return to me come back home to me and i think it's such a powerful and simple instruction that, that you would just simply turn away return to me, and we're going we're to talk about when we get to Luke 15 today, uh, the posture that God uses when when we return to Him, and I think uh, the, the solution to our waywardness, if we are found in Christ, or if you've never given your life to Jesus, is that you would simply return to God. But but pay attention to the later part of, of verse seven, because not only does God instruct us to return to Him, but He tells us how he will respond to our return. 
In fact, the promise is this. I will return my blessing to you. I, I will return to you. And I think this is more accurately stated that I will turn my, my face toward you. So, so when we get into the Old Testament, there's typically two responses that God has with his people. Uh, now, he has this overall desire that I love you. I've chosen you. You are my people. You are a people of my possession. And so the way he responds is, is when your hearts are for me, my face is to you. And so, so we, we use the words blessing and curse. And what you find as you walk with the Old Testament is that the blessing is God's face towards his people. And when his face is towards his people, they have the providence of God and they have the protection of God and they have the peace of God. And then when he says, I will curse you it's not in the sense of like a gypsy curse or a witch's curse what he does is is he says i will turn my my face from you and when he turns his face from them it removes that providence and it removes that protection and it removes that peace and now now what we find is that because he is a, a beautiful and a gracious and a majestic heavenly father this is part of his disciplining of his children in fact paul will put it uh, in, in Romans this way, he says that that eventually what God does when he when he turns his face, when he brings a curse uh, is, is that he allows you to be left to the lust of your own flesh. And he says this, he says, OK, you think you can do this on your own. I'll take I'll take my, my protection off. I'll let you see. And now the, the issue is. When we choose to live that way, it always leads to self-destruction. Uh, because at the root of it, what it is, is our own forms of idolatry. We want to we please ourselves, and we want to make ourselves ultimate. And God says, I'm telling you, you don't have to go there. But when you do, that's part of my, me turning my face from you. And so, so the solution is return to me and the promise remains my blessing will return to you to, to which the people ask an important follow-up i'm sorry the people ask the question how how do we return to you to which god says in in verse eight will man rob god yet you are robbing me but you say uh, how have we robbed you? And then God responds, in your tithes and contributions. Uh, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. And then he says this, the whole nation of you. <laughs> he says all of you. And so, so the answer, the question is, how do we return God? And God says, don't rob me. No, he says, he says and I think this is a major indictment because it's, that's brought into this conversation because it's a, it's a sobering one because this exposes the heart to which the people ask a follow-up question how are we robbing you and and then god says here's a spotlight he says look at how you respond with your tithes and your contributions now now there have been multiple points exposed in this book so far even more if, if we were just looking at the old testament regarding the waywardness of 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 the children of god and, and here's what we have. We have God uses the spotlight to reveal this one area. And he says, you're robbing me. And they say, how? And he's like, I'll just pick one for you. 
does your tithes and, and your contributions. And now we can remember back, if you've been walking with us through this book of Malachi, all the way back in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, how, how the people were despising the altar of God by polluting their offerings with blind and sick animals when God had told them to bring their first and to bring their best. And so, so what we what we will see is the people were shortchanging God by bring by not bringing the full tithe or or even the best of the tithe as a response to His love. And so, so let, let's go ahead and let's get to our our verses of of trouble. I guess this morning, um, verse ten says this. This is God speaking to His people. He says, "Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house." And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Then he says in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And so here's, here's the desire. As God is speaking, he says, just watch, and I'm sorry, I'm learning to read right now. Just watch how I respond to pure worship. He says, you're robbing me. He's saying, well, how? He's like, look at your tithes and your contributions. And then he says, just watch and see what I do when you respond to me with pure worship. And now, again, we've, we've arrived at maybe one of the most recognizable verses in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, it's, it's one where, where Christian TV stations during their giving month uh, will pluck this and they will, they will try to, to twist it and manipulate it to suit different desires. This is the one where, where, where pastors like me have been guilty of trying to, to use it to motivate you toward giving. And, and, and what happens is, is typically this verse will get packaged like this. That, that if you want more from God, then you have to give more to God. And, and the problem with this presentation is, is it strips all of the power from what we've been exploring for two chapters and nine verses. That's what it does. In fact, uh, plucked alone, these verses will say that God is a means to the end of your being rich and without need. Uh, when, when the truth is, God is the entirety of you being rich and without need. That's the way this works. So, so you can't pay God off in an attempt to force him to lend to your building of bigger barns. Okay? That, that's what this is saying. So, so if the blessing of God is more important than the presence of God, then you will never be able to see the beautiful heart of God that beams in this, this, these promises. You can't. And this is what he's talking about. He's like, he's like you're coming to me. And you're expecting these results, but you're not really coming to me. You're coming to me as if I'm a vending machine. And you say, I'll put a couple coins in, and I'll press my button, and then I'll expect whatever I want to drop, and I will, I will take it out. And, and, and so, so God is not a mechanism to suit your own desires. And so... So what we get here is that God declares himself as the great and mighty living God who cuts through our sinfulness and grants us this privilege of being a people of his possession. Now, the tithe is important. It is. 
Honoring God with our finances is, is so important. Honoring God with the first fruit of your finances is so very important. We, we never disconnect ourselves from that part of, of Malachi. But being rich toward God and for his many blessings is so important. And so what God is revealing here is that when you do that, you reveal your gratitude for my provision. And then secondly, uh, when, when our resources are combined, these areas, the areas that we get to minister to, both in the house of God and then outside in our community, are, are multiplied. And so, so the blessing is there would be no need in your life. Now, understand this. This is a dangerous game, okay? Because what we want to read is that there will be no want in your life, right? And again, we can take verses like this and we can, we can squint and we can tilt our, our head a little bit and we can try to make it, right? We can make it into something that it's not intended to be, right? And we said this last week, anytime we want to do that, what we do is we, we can find a God that's small enough to fit in our pocket. Problem is, he's just an idol. And he's just a mascot and he has no power. So we get to verses like this, and we know that the blessing is that there would be no need in our lives and in the collective life of, of the congregation. And the issue here is that the people were hoarding and attempting to shortchange God, and they were exposed in these verses with God pouring his heart out and saying, my desire, hear me when I say this, my desire is to respond to you with blessing as a loving father who celebrates his children. That's God's desire for us. Then we go to, to verse 12. Then, right? So after you do this, you return to me. Well, how do you return to me? Well, you bring me your best. You respond to me with your purest devotion. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of Host. And so the result is that the nations will see my glory. This is what God says. They will see what I'm doing, and that will, they will respond, and they will see um, clearly what is at play. And so, so when we respond properly to God, the glory, His glory, is lit up brightly for all to see. And so, so look, look what happens in verse 12. People will see you, they will call you blessed, and the outpouring of your life is that you can bring delight to others. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's this outpouring. Uh, you are filled up so you can be poured out for the glory of God. And so, so here's what needs to be brought into a point of clarity, that, that we will never respond to God properly if we don't understand his heart for us first. You can't. In fact, the motivation of, of verses 10 and 11 are laced with this understanding of his great love for us and his desire to bestow his blessings on us. And so, so for that, I want us to go to Luke 15, just very quickly. In fact, uh, God has been using this parable uh, in my own heart this week in some, some very 
uh, life-giving ways. Uh, because what we find when we when we open the chapter of Luke 15 is is it begins with these Pharisees and these scribes who are following Jesus and they see who he's spending time with. And and the complaint is that that Jesus is spending time with with two specific types of people, tax collectors and sinners. And so so Jesus sees this, hears this, and he responds to this by teaching three parables. Okay, the, the first parable, uh, the first two parables, I should say, uh, is the first one is the lost sheep, and then the second one is the lost coin, and they're, they're essentially the same thing, uh, where, where someone has lost something of importance to them, and they look high and low, and once they find it, there's great celebration in their hearts, and then they bring that celebration back to their people, and a party breaks out. In fact, uh, in fact, both are shared to give us this picture of joy in heaven when sinners repent. Okay, now, now the third parable, uh, we typically call the, the parable of the prodigal son, um, which isn't really an accurate way of describing uh, the title of what's going on. Uh, because really what it is, it's a picture of the prodigal father. Because Jesus is responding to Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, I'm sorry, Pharisees and scribes in this chapter, and he's giving them a better understanding for what makes God smile. In fact, the word prodigal simply means lavish or extravagant. And so if you want to call it this parable of the wayward son, you can, but you're losing the focus on who is most important in the parable. Because the, the parable it goes like this, that you have, you have a father who has two sons, uh, and the younger uh, son hears the call of a distant land and, and wants to explore what he believes will bring him better and lasting satisfaction. And so he tells his dad, hey, you're not dying quick enough, um, so can I go ahead and just get my inheritance now, to which the father allows it, um, and so the, fun, uh, the, the son uh, goes to the distant land and he lives it up and, uh, and he squanders it and he wastes his money on reckless living. And, and right, when that, right when those funds run out, the severe famine hits the land and, and he takes a job feeding pigs and, and he becomes destitute. And it says that, that when he comes to himself, he longed to come home. In fact, he was so longing to come home that he said, I'm willing to be a hired servant in my dad's house. And so he creates this speech and, and he decides to come back home and he's going to plead his case with, the fa- with his father. And, and then verse 20 happens. And it's one of my favorite verses. Because it says, And when he arose... And came to his father, okay? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then verse 22, check this out. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly 
the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And it says, and they began to celebrate. And I love this scene because because I don't know if you've ever prepared a speech for someone where you're just going to pour it out. But, but he, the son pours out his heart and the father doesn't even respond to what he said. Because in his desire to bless and restore his child, he says, we can get, we're past that, let's go. I wonder this week, is it possible that Luke 15, verses 20 through 24, is not showing us anything new that Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 hasn't already shown? That that we have a Father who is attentive and willing to meet and restore and lavish us with His love. And our response to His love is not an attempt to milk more love from Him, but it's simply a reaction of a heart that has been redeemed and restored. So this, this reaction, it should never have to be mustered up. Okay? Like, like some of you tomorrow will sit in your car before going to the office to muster up the strength and the patience to go. Right? I mean, I don't do that because tomorrow's my day off. So. There are times that we have relationships where that, that friend might be a little much. And so we try to muster up the strength to work through that. There are times when we are wounded that we have to summon compassion and forgiveness and and, uh, love. And what we find here in in Malachi, really what we find in the whole Bible, is, is that the Father displays His love and in response, our desire is to love back. We don't have to summon that. We don't have to dig deep to find our love for God because any moment... Any moment you have to dig deep to find your love for God, there's something wrong in the heart. And it needs to, typically what that means is, is it needs to be exposed through repentance. It needs to be brought to the table. So let's, let's start wrapping this up, Brian. There, there's this passage in Jeremiah. And uh, in fact, really just one verse I want to kind of end with. Um, where Where... The structure of Jeremiah can be really rough because you have you have the the opening chapters is just God telling his children this is the problem with your heart, uh, and then the later parts of it is this is the wrath that I'm going to pour out as a response to that. But but in in the middle of it, like at chapters 30, 31, and 32, you get like this reprieve, and you get God showing and pouring out his heart. And he says this in, in verse 20. He says, is, is Ephraim, which is basically, is Israel, or, or are my children, is Israel my dear son? Is he my darling child? For, for as often as I speak against him, I do still 
remember him. And then he says something that's so important for us to understand about God. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So there's this book I've been reading um, by Dane Ortland. It's called Gentle and Lowly, and, and basically it's just been it's been a gift. Um, but what I, what I want to end with today is is an excerpt from uh, this chapter he was writing about God yearning for the likes of us. And he says this. He says, who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but in the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? His saving of us is, is not cool and calculating. It's a matter of, of yearning. Not, not yearning for the Facebook you that, that you would project to everyone around you. Not, not the you that you wish you were. Yearning for the real you. The you underneath everything that you present to others. Just, just we need to understand that however long we've been walking with the Lord, whether we've, we've read the whole Bible, we've read two verses of the Bible, or we have a PhD in it, we have a perverse resistance to this. Out of his heart flows mercy out of ours reluctance to receive it. We are the cool and calculating ones, not he. He is open-armed, we stiff-armed. Our naturally decaffeinated views of God's heart might feel right because we're um, being stern with ourselves, not letting ourselves off the hook too easily. Such sternness feels appropriately morally serious, but this deflecting of God's yearning heart does not reflect Scripture's testimony about how God feels toward His God is, of course, morally serious. In fact, far more than we are. But the Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that his heart for us wavers according to our loveliness. So hear me when I say this. The Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that his heart for us wavers according to our loveliness. God's heart confounds our intuitions of who He is. The world is starving for a yearning love. A love that remembers instead of forsakes. A love that isn't tied to our loveliness. A love that gets down underneath our messiness. A love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness we might be walking through even today. A love of which even the best human romance is but the faintest of whispers. Then he ends with God's heart of compassion confounds our intuitive predilections about how he loves to respond to his people if they would but dump in his lap the ruin and the wreckage of their lives. He isn't like you. Even the most in, of intense, I'm sorry, even the most intense of human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartful thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which 
you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifetime of sinning. His power runs so deep. His power runs so deep that he is able to redeem the worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. And all we have to do 